The Great Work Radio Program. The Great Work Radio and Blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. Monica Winiarchik is an art historian and PhD student at the University of Glasgow. One of the primary focuses of her study is an intriguing duo of statues which appear all over Central Europe, taking form in statuary, stained glass, carvings, drawings, and paintings. Synagoga and Ecclesia are opposing personifications of Judaism and Christianity, respectively. Monica goes deep into the iconography and significance of the sacred pair and explains their relevance to both the medieval and present eras. What are synagogue and ecclesia, Monica? Well, synagogue and ecclesia first appeared in the 9th century in Northern European Christian art. The figures were intended to represent the transition from the old law to the new law, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and Judaism and Christianity, respectively. Um, They emerged, first of all, within the context of the crucifixion. Now, early on their iconography, the figures were not really distinguished. They were both represented through female figures. Uh, Initially, the two figures appeared to be identical. They were only distinguished through their iconography. For example, synagogue would often be represented with a banner, while ecclesia would collect Christ's blood in a chalice. Now, what happened around the 11th century is that the figures began to develop a more distinct iconographical style and attributes. So, for example, you see synagogue all of a sudden being represented with a blindfold or something uh, uh, covering her eyes, making her visually impaired. Um, a lot of the time, the two figures were represented on a basis of victory and defeat, with Ecclesia represented as the victor and Synagogue as the, fe- the defeated one. The most standard uh, iconography of the figures can really be seen on the Strasbourg South Facade at Strasbourg Cathedral. Here what you have is exactly this contrast between Synagogue as very much the defeated figure, her, from every aspect of her appearance, communicates the feat. She's slumped forward, her posture is, is very weak, it's very flimsy. Her drapery uh, gathers in very flimsy folds around her feet, giving the impression that she, if she was to walk, she would fall over. Uh, she ha- holds a broken staff in her hand, she has a blindfold tied rapidly, tight wrapped tightly around her eyes, which was meant to signify the Jews' inability to see the true meaning of God's word and see Christ as their true Messiah. And, and, and what's, we, what's she holding in her left hand? I'm looking at the picture right now. 
In her left hand at Strasbourg Synagogue is holding tablets of the law, which are meant to represent the Jewish tablets of the law. Now, the way she holds them, if you look at the image, she's sort of holding them behind her, and she seems to be almost losing her grasp on them, which is, again, this idea of defeat and weakness. Now, although you can't see it now, if you look at original engravings of the site from the 16th century, um, you see that originally she had a crown placed at her feet, which communicates this idea that she was once in power. She had power, but she no longer has her power. Transcribed over to Ecclesia, who, if you look at Strasbourg, she is the epitome of strength. If Synagoga is a representation of weakness, she is strength and regal power personified. She's very upright. Her pose is very strong. Her drapery, in contrast to uh, Synagoga's, is very heavy and gives her a sense of stability. She has a crown firmly placed on her head. She holds a scepter in her hand, both symbols of regal power. Now, these figures, what I think people don't realize is that they're actually communicating a very complex theological idea. As most people will know, uh, Judaism has always had a very difficult position within Christianity. Nowhere was this more true than the Middle Ages and medieval theology. Because remember that although a lot of people are uh, familiar with this idea of the Jews being the enemies of the church. Remember that within Christian salvation history, the Jews were God's first chosen people. There were people he gave his law to first. It was only with Christ's crucifixion that they were then, despite biblical evidence, accused of deicide and of being responsible directly for Christ's death. And most people seem to leave it at that. But remember that it does position of Judaism or the role of Judaism within Christian salvation history does not stop at the crucifixion. One of the conditions of the second coming of Christ, which was the culmination of uh, Christian salvation history, was the conversion of the Jews back to Christianity and return to God. Yeah, I saw that in your article and I'd never heard of that before. Uh, is, do, are there Christians that still believe that, do you know? Yeah, I mean, this is it's a very sort of fundamentalist Christian idea, but yes, but it's very much written in theology that the second coming of Christ, the Jews will convert. So this is why uh, within theology, a lot of the time you have Christian theologians saying that, you know, like St. Augustine, slay them not, because you're not, Christians weren't supposed to kill the Jews. They were meant, the Jews will ultimately return to Christ. That's the you know, the flow of Christian salvation history. So Synagoga has a really complex role to play because she needs to represent these Jews who are at once God's first chosen people, then betrayed him and crucified his son, but will ultimately return to him. So it's almost, it's, it's almost hello in Shakespeare, you know, you sorry, begin... Sorry, can you start again after they'll ultimately, ultimately return to him? That's fine. So she's really, uh, Synagoga plays a, has to communicate a very complex position because she's almost like this Othello-like figure. You know, we start off, she was God's first chosen, uh, representation of God's first chosen people. You know, the Old Testament Jews were revered in Christianity, figures like Moses. Then, you know, she has to personify at the same time this Jew who betrayed his son, but also there has to be this feeling of hope that she will once again return to Christianity. And I think that's why Synagoga is such a perplexing figure, because she can communicate all these aspects at once. 
So she's really fascinating in just how much she can communicate visually. And if you look at the figure, she does. You know, the idea that she is beautiful, that's extremely unique within the medieval iconography of Judaism, the way that Jews were represented in Christian art. If you look at any representations of Judaism in medieval Christianity, the Jews were usually represented through a grotesque, deformed male figure. And suddenly you have this, because if you look at representations of synagogue, she is beautiful. At Strasbourg, she is just as beautiful as Ecclesia. And this is generally the case. Sometimes art historians come to the conclusion that she is even more beautiful than Ecclesia. So I think the fact that she's beautiful but weak is because she's meant to communicate the fact that Jews are a part of God's uh, plan. So they have to be beautiful because in order for Judaism to be personified through a deformed figure, it, it gives the impression that there's some sort of imperfection in God's plan, which she can't communicate. She has to communicate this aspect of the smooth transition. So it's a very complex position that this figure is trying to communicate. Now, did, you mentioned in the article that um, she may represent the feminine uh, aspect um, as opposed to Ecclesia representing the masculine aspect so that it creates a dichotomy? Yeah, there's. Uh, that's actually one of the things that uh, my thesis is about is because, like I said, um, you don't have... The, there aren't many representations of female... Jews in medieval art. Sarah Lipton, you know, was, they're so rare that Sarah Lipton actually addressed this issue in an article which is called Where Are All the Gothic Women Jews? Where is the Jewess? So my thoughts on the matter are that really her femininity is, the, is meant to communicate the shared identity shared between females in medieval Christianity and the Jews, because if you look at the two groups together, there are quite a lot of parallels between them. You know, uh, this idea of having a sort of innately evil nature, of being susceptible to evil influence, of needing to be controlled. If you look at Christian theology concerning women and both Jews, you see that the two shared quite a few qualities. Also, within medieval notions of the body, the Jewish body was seen as innately feminine. Uh, for example, um, in the Middle Ages, the body was understood in terms of the four humors as presented by Hippocrates. And the Jews were believed to be naturally melancholy. Now, what that meant was that their bodies were believed to be abundant in black bile. Mm. Now, black bile was a poisonous substance. It was seen as poisoned blood. So in order to get rid of it, the body needed to somehow expel it. Now, what that meant was that medieval Christians believed that in order to expel this blood, both male and female Jews would menstruate. So in the Middle <laughs> Ages, it yeah, and I know as crazy as that sounds, in the Middle Ages, it was believed that Jewish men menstruated. And you wow. have lots of, yeah, you have lots of texts of people talking about the fact that uh, Jewish men would menstruate. Now, what really... Uh, a lot of texts talking about the body talk about is really that they would suffer from anal bleeding, but they would equate that to menstruation because any expulsion of the blood from that part of the body would be seen as a form of menstruation. Was that some so sort of was that an insinuation of sodomy? 
you do find that as well. It's not something I focused on, but you do find that there's quite a big parallel between sodomy and Judaism. The two were uh, things that were said about the sodomites were often equated to Jews, and the two are sometimes interrelated. So yes, there is this aspect of social misdemeanor, which is actually in a lot of images, uh, synagogue is shown engaging in sexually inappropriate behavior. Sorry, sorry, S uh, synagogue is shown bleeding, you said? Uh, not bleeding, but uh, she's often shown engaging in sexually inappropriate behavior because what sodomy was really seen as was uh, anything that uh, questioned or did anything other than the sort of natural sexual act was seen as a form of sodomy or oh, perversion. What, what so, was she depicted as doing? If you look at the stained glass window in Marburg Cathedral, she is shown holding a goat's head, which in the Middle Ages was symbolic of carnality and was often a symbol associated with the Jews. Well, she's holding the uh, goat head by the horn. And the horn's quite a phallic symbol. Oh. But what's slightly more disturbing is that she's holding the goat head pointing towards her groin and the goat has his tongue out, oh wow! Really? I know. So it's really suggesting, you know, that she's engaging in quite interesting sexual practices. Yeah. So it's it really is. I mean, if you start looking at the iconography bit by bit, just it's fascinating how much is being said through this one figure. So it's you know it's really I think it deserves much more attention than it's been given. Yeah. Um. But you mentioned in the article as well that um some art historians interpret personification itself as neutral a goddess as a personification uh, may not actually have any inherent features herself she just is basically a stand-in dummy for an idea in a context yeah exactly she's uh, because that's what she is synagogue is basically a conception of Judaism what we need to remember when looking at uh, Christian representations of the Jews is that these were not actual representations of medieval Jews these were not you know contemporary Jews who would live within Christendom these were a conception these were what the Christian church wanted the Jews to be so synagogue is very much representing what Jeffrey Cohen described as the hermeneutical Jew. She's the Jew the way that the Christian church wanted the Jews to be. Mm -hmm. She's submissive, she's easily controlled, and she fits within this idea of the Jewish role within Christian salvation history. She doesn't question her role, she subjects to it. So that so, kind of turns the whole notion of... Um, Jewish usurpation on its head because it's basically stating that the um, the Catholic Church is is subjugating the Jews for its own basically materialistic endeavors. Yeah, basically, I mean, synagogue is in no way a representation of you know the real Jew living within Christian society. No representations of the Jews by the Christian Church were, you know, they were. A, I mean, as with every image, every image was meant to communicate something. This wasn't, you know, this isn't social realism. This isn't the church representing reality. This is the church representing its own theology, its own beliefs, you know, educating its own audience. Because what we need to remember of synagogue, which I think a lot of historians do forget about, and it's only recently that people like Sarah Lipton and Nina Rowe have began to examine, is the fact that... Uh, 
synagogue was a very public figure. She was not limited with to clerical context. She uh, appeared on numerous uh, cathedral facades, which would have been seen by a wide lay audience, and also Jews themselves. For example, Strasbourg during the 13th century had a very strong Jewish presence. So Jews walking across the city square would have seen this giant figure of synagogue who basically personified them. So it's something that, I mean, creates quite an interesting dynamic when we start to actually think about who would have seen these figures and who are they intended for and what were they meant to communicate. Now, I think initially, as I said in my article, scholars have really focused on a theological reading of the figure, which is a brilliant place to start because she was a creation of the Christian church. So she's bound to have, you know, a theological basis. But what we need to remember is that a lot of the figures that a lot of the people who would have seen her or the context they would have seen her in would have attributed to her different meanings from their own perspectives. So I think that's really where synagogue scholarship is going next. It's about looking at contextualizing the figure and also granting her a more cultural reading rather than just a theological one, because she would have been seen out with this uh, church or theological context especially places like Strasbourg, where the cathedral facade would have been the centre of sort of city activity. I mean, it, it wasn't only a religious place. It was where city court, courts would have taken, it's, it would have taken place, you know, it's where people would be proclaimed guilty or innocent of sins, of crimes. It was a legal form. You know, so the Jews would have interacted with this figure as well. So we really need to bear that in mind. Now, uh, would the common people have known who she represented or what she represented? It's always the interesting thing when you start looking at the Middle Ages because we don't really know to what extent, you know, we have to sort of build up our own picture from the sources that we have. And from how popular synagogue was in non-clerical or non-theological contexts, it gives us the impression that people would have been aware of her. For example, she fe featured quite prominently in medieval passion plays which were very popular among the lay audience, and they would have seen these, so they would have known who she was. She featured in sermons, which people would have heard in the church. Also, she has a very strong presence in 13th century Bible Moralisé, which were illustrated biblical narratives, which sort of moralized biblical passages, and they were aimed at a courtly audience. They were not aimed at a clerical audience. So looking at these sources, we do get the impression that people would have been aware of who she was meant to represent. Now, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't have maybe attributed her different meanings considering uh, the context they would have seen her in. For example, at Strasbourg, if you look at the iconography of synagogue and ecclesia and this power of someone, you know, someone winning and someone losing, and you think that, you know, medieval courts would have taken place in front of that facade, would the contemporary audience have related synagogue maybe to the guilty party and ecclesia to the innocent? Would that have created a different di uh, dynamic between them? Is this a different dichotomy? You know, so it does uh, lead to other interpretations. And I think now art historians are beginning to look at these contexts and say, well, how would have these contexts influenced the way people would have seen them? Would they have always accepted them as a personification of Judaism and Christianity? Or would they have interpreted them in other ways? Um, so Solomon, there was a statue of Solomon in between these statues. Is that always the case? Uh, not always the case, uh, but it's not surprising considering that 
Solomon was sometimes seen as a version of Christ. So generally what you would see the figures standing around as they would be separated by Christ within the crucifixion. So Solomon was often seen as a precursor to Christ. So that's not very that's not a strange thing. It is quite unique with Strasbourg. But what you also find is that the figures often featured in uh, the medieval exegesis of the Song of Songs, where Solomon featured quite prominently. So really, Strasbourg, a lot of art historians have interpreted Strasbourg as relying on the Song of Songs iconography. So that could uh, explain the presence of Solomon at Strasbourg. Another thing was that uh, if you look at the context of medieval courts, what you find is that above uh, Solomon is the figure of Christ. Now, below Solomon is where the uh, bishop or king would have sat if he had been in Strasbourg at the time of a court or a municipal court. So th it also creates quite an interesting commentary about the position of the bishop on earth if you know if you see Christ at the pinnacle and then Solomon as a sort of precursor to Christ and then below him the bishop is creating a relationship between you know the earthly the church on earth as being as having the power of Christ you know as being direct line to Christ and having the same power as him what evidence is there that synagogue is a direct representation of Judaism as opposed to just a representation of the Old Testament? In, the, in theology, the figure is equated to Judaism, and the Old Testament was Judaism. That's, you know, that's not uh, questionable. It's just basically, it's in theology, she is definitely a representation of Judaism. And you see that in the Biblia Moralize, where any time synagogue appears, the commentary to it will say this is a representation of the Jews who denied Christ or who crucified Christ or so she is equated directly to Judaism. It's not just, you know, a role that's been placed upon her and she is uh, sometimes marked with, you know, she is marked as Judea at the bottom. So mm. she's, you know, it's, she's definitely a representation of both. Uh, and the fact that she's uh, depicted as being very beautiful and fine, uh, as opposed to being some sort of stereotype caricature of a Jewess, uh, what what does that signify? Well, first of all, that's actually one of the interesting things about the Jewess, is that if you look at the very few representations of female Jews that we do have from the Middle Ages, Unlike their male counterparts, they weren't caricatured. Often in the Middle Ages, Jewish women and Christian women were depicted as being exactly alike. Now, if you've ever looked at any medieval Christian art, this sounds completely unique and quite, I mean, it sounds completely crazy because if you look at representations of Christian males and Christian Jews, the differences between them are striking. I mean, the male Jew is extremely caricatured from, you know, all the star standard iconography that continued until, you know, the 20th century and Nazi propaganda already there in the Middle Ages, you know, bearded, crooked noses, deformed, while the Jewess was beautiful. I mean, she, was, she looked like her Christian counterpart. You couldn't tell the difference whether it was synagogue or not. Now, one of the reasons um, that could be is that uh, some 
people like Sarah Lipton have began to question, well, what was the what was the female Drewman to represent? And generally, the consensus at the moment is that is that female Jews were meant to communicate a different aspect of Judaism within Christianity. So while the male Jew was the threatening was the representation of the threatening Jew who committed deicide, the Jewess was meant to communicate this aspect of submission and also conversion. Women were more likely to be converted. So the representation of the Jewess is often equated to the Jew who will convert at the end of time. Now, as far as synagogue's beauty goes, I think what we need to remember is that synagogue was meant to represent Christian salvation history. This was the history, you know, this was God's plan for human history. If synagogue was this caricature or this uh, grotesque male figure, that almost begins to question the perfection of God's plan. So I think really what her beauty communicates is, you know, the ideal, the perfection of God's plan. The Jews were meant to be God's first chosen people. They were meant to betray Christ. Everything happens as God wills it. So her representation as this very fine figure just communicates that she is, you know, everything that she represents, God intended her to be. And you do get cases where synagogue is represented as a man. There are one or two where she's represented as an elderly, bearded man, a sort of Moses-like figure. But what I think is really interesting about that is that these representations are very rare. So it shows that synagogue was consciously female because she these representations basically show us that she could have been represented as a male figure but for one reason or another christian uh, theologians or whoever commissioned the images felt that a female figure was more suited to the purpose is ecclesia ever represented as a male figure Ecle- the church is always represented as a female figure now that creates an interesting dynamic within sort of medieval gender ideology in its own. So although there is one image where it's not really ecclesia, but the papacy is represented through male clerical figures, but the church in itself is always represented through a female figure. With statues or depictions of Muslim women, uh, are there any existing in, in Christian iconography? That's actually a very interesting point that Sarah Lipton looked at in her article asking where are all the Jewish women because what she noted was that Muslim women weren't spared being caricatured, that Muslim women were often shared the iconography of Muslim men. Oh, wow. I know, so that's really interesting. It's that it's not just that synagogue as a female because you, here you have the Muslim female who's sort of the other other in medieval Christendom right, right. and she's not spared uh, you know being caricatured or deformed or she very much shares in the iconography of the, her male counterpart so you know, it's just it adds another layer and I think it's only now that for a very long time I think uh, art historians and scholars of uh, the Middle Ages have just looked at synagogue as well. She's a personification of Judaism. She represents, you know, the blindfold represents the Jews' inability to see Christ. The fact that she is dethroned represents the fact that the Jews were God's first chosen people, but they no longer are, that that role has passed over to the Christians. 
But now, as the more scholars have began to look at her, they realize that actually there's a lot more going on there, and that we do when we do acknowledge, you know, other uh, cultural factors, and exactly the fact that Muslim women weren't spared this caricaturing, and the fact that synagogue would have been seen out with a theological context, she really does become more complex and a far more sort of engaging figure. You just realize there's much more to be done. So, so she becomes more of an engaging figure. And there's just so much more to be done because you realize just how uh, complex the culture that she was depicted in was. Yeah. Uh, now, there's something really fascinating. Uh, you wrote that Synagoga was punished, buried, and purged. And that sounded like um, almost like a, a Masonic initiation or um, a Christ ritual. Yeah, what you find is that she is, although she's beautiful, she really isn't spared. I mean, you have representations where she's stabbed by angels. She's depicted in one crucifix being chased out of the scene with a lance by an angel above her. In some passion plays, she becomes a martyr for the faith. She's actually killed for converting back to Christianity. So it is... And remember that, that if you look at Christian theology, a lot of the Christian theologians said, you know, don't uh, kill the Jews because their punishment is that they have to live and that they have to see that the Christians, you know, the sort of the glory of the Christians while they're punished. And that's their punishment. So it's almost like Synagoga represents that. She's representing the fact that the Jews are being punished for their sin, but they will be purged, they will be redeemed. And I think that's really uh, quite clear when you start looking at Synagoga's blindness. Now, Synagoga's blindness, or really visual imperity is more accurate, is represented in many ways. Most uh, common, it's the blindfold, as you'd see in Strasbourg. Sometimes what you see is that she has a snake wrapped around her eyes. Now that you can see mm. a representation of that at uh, Notre Dame in Paris. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, on the west facade. And then sometimes what you see is that she has, there's maybe a demon who's pointing an arrow at her eyes. Or mm. what you see is that she just has her eyes closed and her head turned. Now what's interesting about that is that nowhere is her blindness permanent. Really, all you have to oh, do... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is unwrap the blindfold. The snake has to be, can coil itself off her eyes. She can open her eyes. She is never shown to be permanently blind. There is always a way to make her see. So that really is this aspect of conversion, you know, the aspect that she will not always be in this state. She can come back. She can open her eyes. And sometimes even within the early crucifixions where there's not that, strong an iconography what you find is that synagogue might be leaving the scene but her feet point back towards christ giving this uh, sort of insinuation that although her body appears to be moving away from him her feet show that she will be coming back to him <laughs> yeah. have you thought about um how this relates to current the current world situation where um the maitreya or the antichrist is supposed to be appearing as we speak What's quite amusing is that the way I actually, the first time I really discovered synagogue was at, uh, in my undergraduate degree in a course taught by Dr. Deborah Strickland, and she actually did teach about the apocalypse. 
And what you find is that a lot of these ideas about the apocalypse have not changed or the second coming of Christ. I mean, it's frightening, but a lot of the iconographical means used to depict the other or, you know, the other in our society are really borrowed from the Middle Ages. And these ideas have just persisted through centuries, you know, so it's, it's, we often tend to think of the Middle Ages as something completely removed from contemporary society. But when you really start looking at it, these ideas have, you know, have just continued throughout the century. I mean, I know what, what is really frightening is that when you start looking at the iconography of the Jews within medieval Christianity and then take something quite extreme like Nazi propaganda in the 1930s, 1940s, the iconography of the figures is identical. The same things were used to distinguish the Jew in medieval Christianity as they were in Nazi Germany. Now that that is absolutely, I and mean, that's frightening to think well, about. The it. way the way you're describing it, it makes it sound like there's almost some sort of sacrificial function that um, the Catholic Church or whatever um, whatever authority has power over the Jews uses the Jews for. I think that's generally the case with the other, and it's also why recent because uh, uh, one of the things that actually Deborah Strickland has written about is the fact that a lot of the in the Middle Ages, a lot of the others, whether it be Jews, women, monstrous races, Muslims, the iconography attributed to all of all of them is pretty similar. So. It's not really just about the Jews. It's just the way that we represent the other in society, regardless of that society may be, whether it's 21st century, you know, Europe or America, or whether it's the medieval uh, medieval Christendom. The the way that we depict those who are outside or who are branded to be outside our society, or you know marginal within society is very similar the way we represent them doesn't really change um but apparently according to this the title of this book by pseudo augustine that you that you uh, mentioned in, in your article um Aryans are considered heretics and i found that astounding yeah, that's, see it's sometimes things just get lost in translation i mean reading that you do think what you know, especially later on with Aryans being sort of branded the, you know. Um, that's another thing that you often find is that heretics get the exact same treatment as the Muslims or the Jews or women. Women shared a lot of the iconography and were branded in a lot of the same labels as these other, you know, religious other. So is this, you know, this idea that we still have uh, in society of, you know, the sort of the uh, superiority of the white male. In the Middle Ages, it was the white Christian male. Anything that went out with those criteria was, you know, was the other or marginal. Yeah, but according to this, pagans, Jews, Muslims, and Aryans are all heretics. So who's who's left to be to be stereotyping and punishing all of these groups <laughs> the christian church the papacy the it's very much it's very what you need to remember is that the church was uh, extremely powerful at this time and basically it was a very clear-cut line of what is heresy what isn't it's uh, you know 
the situation was slightly maybe not less complex, but you know you didn't have these sort of breakaways. And if you what you do find is that when people did break away or question something, they were automatically pushed in that box of the other. You find that a lot of, uh, for example, orders which may be questioned. Uh, the subordination of women or questioned why should why shouldn't women preach why shouldn't women teach were automatically branded as heretic because they were questioning this very strict very you know standardized order that the church or the uh, clerical powers were trying to maintain so it is really very much a patriarchal view of society where it is just the white male christian and everybody else, anyone who deviates from that, you know, and this kind of uh, folk, not it's not really about race or, well, it's about race and religion. I mean, it really has continued from the classical period where with the Greeks where anything, you know, as far as the Greeks were concerned, anything that deviated from the perfect Greek body was, you know, was the other you know, and you have, you know, the Greek, as far as the Greeks were concerned, the Greek climate, uh, you know, the Greek body, it will all produce the most superior humans and everyone out with that was somehow inferior. And what you find is that the Christians actually absorbed a lot of these ideas from classical Greece, which entered Europe through Muslim translation of, of you know, just to add a bit of irony to it, and used these ideas to proclaim their own superiority and it suddenly it became that the northern european climate produced the most superior body that it was the white northern european body which was the most superior to others so it is i mean it, you start to realize just you know just how small that group was of every it basically when you start looking at it it seems like the world was made up of the other who was the actual us yeah and it still is isn't it yeah, and it's exactly which is uh, why. Pseudo Augustine, who is who is he? A pope? Uh, basically, pseudo Augustine is the name given to uh, theologians who sound like Augustine, but we know that it's not Augustine. So they basically follow Saint Augustine's uh, school of thought. Okay, for for them to be citing Arians as heretics again, doesn't that exclude white males? As uh, doesn't that include white males in in the other? Uh, Arians at this time are understood to be slightly different. It's not the Arians that we understand the Aryan from Nazi, you know, propaganda or Nazi right. ideology. So the Arians were a sort of other group. Well, so were they were really they Germans in contrast to? the Romans that would have been writing this? No, actually, uh, what you see is uh, Northern Europe, including Germany and France, would have very much been included in the sort of perfect white male figures. A lot of the texts were actually coming from Germany and France. The Aryans were just a completely different group to what we associate with the Aryan race. Oh, okay. Well, do you have any idea what they were? It was just, I think the Aryans at this point were meant to be like, um, if you think of maybe, uh, not, I'm not equating it to the same place, but something like the Slavs, they're basically another ethnic group. 
Okay. That just yeah. seems really strange that they, that the, I guess, but the Romans may have considered, have always considered themselves to be different from the Aryans. But I mean, I'd read that the Aryans were uh, people essentially Indo-Europeans, right? So that they extended all the way from India to Ireland in a, in a crescent, in an arc, in a crescent, the Aryan crescent, I read. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, I think the problem with these terms or, and even today to this point is that they're so easily manipulated to suit whoever is writing history at the time you know so it is very much the sort of you can basically you can apply something negative to anyone and that's what you see really that's the a lot of Deborah Strickland's work deals with the fact that a lot of these criticisms were sort of standardized, you know, that a lot of the criticisms that were applied to one group by one group were then applied by the same group to another group. And it's just, it doesn't seem to be ever ending. So it's always really, history is always written from the perspective of the victor. So that's really what's coming across in this. Okay. And then um, can you tell us a bit more about Ecclesia? Because we've up till now been speaking primarily of synagogue. And I think... Uh, that tends to happen is that synagogue, just because she's so unique, tends to get quite a lot of the attention. When the two really did feed off each other, I mean, the motif is, you know, she, they're both one half of one motif. Now, Ecclesia is interesting in herself in the fact that she's often interpreted or given different meanings. What you see is that she is sometimes portrayed as the New Testament. Sometimes she's interpreted as the church, as an actual physical representation of the church on earth. Sometimes she's equated the figure of the Virgin Mary. So she in herself is an extremely complex figure that's granted quite a lot of meanings. And uh, what I think people, what needs to be, when interpreting these figure, figures, what you need to be careful about is not to ignore Ecclesia. And it's not really a case of saying, well, Judaism is represented as a woman because women were subordinate. Because then, well, what about Ecclesia? Now, what's quite interesting is that the figures do tend to build on, and Nina Rowe really addresses this in her latest book, is the fact that the idea of contrasting a victor and the defeated with by two female figures is very much drawing on classical ideas, in, especially in the classical period where conquered lands and the conqueror would be represented by two female figures. What you also find in the Middle Ages is that two female figures are very often used to represent uh, the vices and the virtues. So this idea of good against evil was often represented through two female figures, so synagogue and ecclesia can be seen as reading into that tradition. Even at Strasbourg, if you look at the representation of the vices conquering the virtues, which are just on the other side of the cathedral, what you see is that the virtues share a lot of the iconographical uh, traits of Ecclesia, while the vices are quite similar to synagogue. What specific iconography? Uh, the idea of the crown, you know, this, uh, the posture of Ecclesia, that's what uh, you can see that within the representation of the virtues, whereas with synagogue and the vices, they both have quite the sort of similar mourning expression, the twisted bodies, and you also see it on the representation of the wise and foolish virgins. 
uh, on Strasbourg Cathedral, the same case. And now the wise and foolish virgins were again meant to represent those who would be saved and the condemned at the end of time. So again, you have this idea of the virtuous and the sinful uh, being represented by female figures who share a lot of the iconography of synagogue and ecclesia. Now, within the uh, crucifixion, what she does is she actually holds up the chalice to Christ's side wound and collects his blood in it, which is meant to be this idea of, you know, communion and drinking bloods, uh, drinking the blood of Christ. So the chalice is really a representation of that. So she's, she's, she's collecting the blood of, of Christ that's exiting his wound in, in his side, right? Yeah, that's the lance wound in the side. Now, have you have you ever read any have you ever read any um, references to the lance wound in his side being a depiction of or a, a suggestion of a vulva? Oh, that is very popular, and and a lot of people have interpreted it that way. Now, that's one of the reasons why I don't think that it's this idea of representing Judaism in a female body is, you know, is they're sharing the subordinate position of the of women. Because what you need to remember is that within Christianity, uh, a lot of male figures were attributed uh, traits of femininity, Christ being one of them, and the side wound being represented as a vulva is very common. And it's sometimes... I've read quite a lot of papers and I've been to a lot of conferences where people will show images that it, I mean, it's not just the shape, it's represented quite, you know, graphically as a vulva. And there's also the idea of often of Christ uh, breastfeeding his, you know, his followers. So it's not just that femininity was seen as subordinate because you do have uh, of male figures being attributed sort of maternal female qualities. So we can't just say, you know, it's very tempting to say, oh, it's femininity, women were subordinate. It's not because you need to remember that during the Middle Ages, sexuality was a very fluid concept. It was not the two gender system that we have nowadays. What other uh, male figures have been, had been depicted that you'd seen uh, in a feminine way? It's not really in visual representations, but in written sources, a lot of the times you have Christian saints being uh, said to breastfeed their uh, disciples or their followers or depicted with breasts or uh, described in maternal terms as a mother figure. So it's very much, you know, very feminine identities being attributed to them. Within the idea of the four humors, which is what I think a lot of people... uh, it's quite difficult to look at issues of gender from our perspective when we're looking at the Middle Ages or the classical period, because within this notion of the four humors, which underlined the classical and medieval understanding of the body, gender is a far more fluid thing than it is nowadays. What you need to remember is that within this concept, women were basically a deformed man. What uh, what happened, what, or the way they understood it was that within the womb, something went wrong, that a male fetus wasn't produced by a female fetus. Often it was attributed to the womb being too cold. So basically it was, the womb was <laughs> too cold and a woman was produced. Uh-huh. So women were very much seen as a deformed man. 
but the two are seen basically as identical with women just being deformed. So it's almost like femininity and being a woman was a deformity. Okay, all right. So it's quite a, you know, it's not just, it's not the way that we look at this male, female, you know, maybe less now than maybe 20 years ago, but within the classical period and the medieval period, it was very much, you know, that a man could be, you know, physically a man, but if his humors were out of balance or if he was excessively cold, he would, he could act in a feminine manner and be seen as effeminate. Are you conducting iconological research? Do you consider it iconology or no? I don't know if it's just, I think, uh, iconology, but very much rooted in a cultural examination of the period and, you know, what cultural factors, how the medieval culture would have fed into how people would have interpreted this figure, because I think it's... uh, it's been cut off from wider cultural context for too long, and it's only really been in the last 10 years that people have said, well, hold on a minute, you know, we can't just stick her in the theological box and ignore a wider context, because she is such a public figure. I mean, I know she. I don't think a lot of people know what you're talking about when you say the name synagogue, but then you show images. I mean, that was the case for me. When I started researching it, I realized that all of my childhood, I had seen a synagogue in Marburg in Poland. So I'd actually seen this figure and I had no idea who she was, but I had seen her. And a lot of the time what you find is that when you start looking, you realize that actually, yeah, I've, I've seen her before. Are there any uh, synagogues and ecclesias in, in uh, the UK? Uh, yeah, there are a few. Generally, uh, most of them are in south of England. There's a few panels in a few of the big surf cathedrals. I think there's one in Winchester Cathedral, um, one in York. Uh, there's a wooden panel. So, yeah, she, she does prop up. And there's a book of hours in the special collection of University of England that has synagogue and ecclesia on the first page of the manuscript. What book was that? It's a 14th century book of hours in the special collections at Glasgow University. Are there any other common depictions of uh, Jews um, in Christian contexts that are uh, different from synagogue? Yeah, the, the Jews feature quite a lot in medieval Christian art, but what you do generally find is it's this grotesque, crooked-nosed, bearded man. I mean, that's basically, that's the standard. Uh, if you look at Melenkoff's book on medieval iconography, Outcasts, she basically looks at the sort of standard iconography attributed to Jews in medieval Christian art, and that is the sort of standard, that's what the Jew looked like, that's what the Jew is. And are those, uh, are those drawings or sculptures or stained-glass windows? Uh, Across everything, really? from stained glass windows to illuminated manuscripts to uh, sculpture to carvings, there's a very, in the, especially with the medieval Christianity, there's a very standard iconography that's uh, maintained throughout basically all the sources. Even if you look at passion plays, you know, if uh, there are always sort of descriptions of what a figure would look like. And you have the same, you know, a Jew comes on, he wears a pointed hat, has a beard, you know. 
So uh, what about in, in Shakespeare was were Jews was the, the merchant of Venice also depicted that way or was it more humanist? <laughs> Uh, quite a lot of similarities. That's the frightening. I think that's the frightening thing is that's one of the things that uh, Deborah Strickland's course really highlighted was the fact that these iconographical uh, traditions that we associate with the other, first of all, they didn't begin in the Middle Ages. The same things were used in the classical period. The exact same thing was used to describe, you know, the barbarians, basically all non-Greeks. And then you had you know, in the Middle Ages, you had medieval Christians do the same thing to the other. And then, you know, you look through history and you realize that the same traditions have just carried on. I mean, it's it's astonishing that, you know, this is the thing that we seem to have inherited and not let go. You think yeah. you learned by some point. But no, it's and, you know, if you start, I've never really done this, but I have talked to other people who look at more contemporary representations of religious others. And you find the same thing comes up over and over again. The same iconographical sort of traditions have been maintained, regardless of who is us and who is the other. It only seems to change, you know, from whose perspective you're looking at it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. Well, you know, my last name, Wa, it's Scottish, mm -hmm. but it's actually a Norman word for foreigner, and it's a derogatory uh, form of, of a word for foreigner. So they would say, like, it's W-A-U-G-H, right? And so yeah. they, would, they would call people, you know, Wah, you know, like like bloody foreigner or whatever. So this, it actually ties right into what you're saying. <laughs> so there you go. You can say that story. You're just part of a really long sort of 2,000-year-old history. Underdogs and outcasts. <laughs> I know. Underdogs and outcasts. I mean, yeah, it's exactly. That's why Ruth Mellenkoff called her book The Outcast because she's basically, you know, this is the iconography of the outcast, whoever, wherever he may be. Thank you for listening to The Great Work Radio. The Great Work Radio and blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-W-A-U-G-H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoyed today's program. To download The Great Work Radio program files, just search for the name Jesse War in the iTunes Store.